This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Blank Podcast, a podcast where we delve into those difficult moments with some well-known people. I'm Jim Daly and joining me as ever from the comfort of his living room in isolation, as we all are, it's Charles Paley Phillips. How are you? I'm all right. I'm actually in my bedroom. Oh, sorry. Semantics. Sorry. Um, (laughs) And how are you feeling? I wanted to get it right. Oh, no, good. I know we have to be as accurate as possible. Um, we're we're in sort of the second or third week of sort of self isolation now, and, and how yeah. you know how are we how are you feeling about everything at the moment? How how are you and the family getting on? We're getting on all right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a level of adjustment. The kids being off, and uh, there's always challenges um, with. Like, obviously, we're putting in place sort of learning activities for them to do. So it's you know it's not just them playing Xbox twenty four seven. Uh, but it, we're all coping fine, actually. And, um, you know, we're, we're trying lots of new things with them as well. They're getting to explore stuff they might not have done at school. Um, so that's that's good. So we're trying to, you know, obviously we're, we're, we're being very upbeat um, through a very challenging time for the for the country. I think you <laughs> you sounded like a politician, as you told off there. Um, I think you, you have to. I think you do have to stay positive. And that's actually, you know, this is this episode... Uh, with the brilliant Chris Addison this week was recorded mm. um, a couple of weeks into the uh, coronavirus last week, actually. And um, a lot of these uh, themes come up with sort of trying to get through it and trying to avoid coronavirus anxiety, which is a, a phrase mm. that we coined on the podcast and, and talking about <laughs> what to do with the kids now they're off school. There are a lot of these new challenges that we, you know, we, we wouldn't have a month ago, we wouldn't have even thought of how to get through but um it was interesting talking to to chris and hearing his advice uh on how to to deal with everything at the moment uh on what is quite a sort of fresh new problem for all of us mm. well i mean obviously for us um freelancers and podcasters the that we've been highly impacted by what's going on we can't you know we we can't get into london uh, i can't get into london um particularly well and obviously we're all self-isolating and social distancing so we can't meet up with people so we're having to adapt 
to what is the sort of new way of life at the moment and so we've we and we don't want to stop doing the podcast you know it's in, for for ourselves as as well as our listeners you know we want to keep creating and making stuff so we you know we took the decision that we were going to do a few um episodes recording remotely you know which we can do because we've got the technology and you know it's not going to be you know what you usually get um it would be a slightly different kind of messaging coming across in the podcast obviously we're still sort of remaining on brand as much as we can but yeah going through this sort of period we're, we're going to sort of adapt slightly with it as well and um you know for us blank is going to sort of be slightly different um in the next few weeks but you know i hope people will roll with it and um we'll still sort of be tuning in and listening yeah i hope so too and um adapting i think is a good way of describing it but as human mm. beings, you know, throughout history, we have adapted a lot and mm. nearly always positively and, and got through things. So that, uh, that is helping me get through this at the moment. And do you know what's also helping me get through uh, mm. this this nationwide blank moment is um, tweets. Mm. But I'll start with this one. I've got one. I've got okay. one. I've got one here from Phil Steer. And he says, the future can feel blank at the moment. But as Susie Dent encourages us on Blank Pod, blank can be a starting point rather than an end point and you can take it from there so that's a really nice sort of sentiment from an old podcast that's beautiful i feel like i i feel like i should uh have that written up in nice font on my wall uh pasted over a sunset or something that sounds quite inspirational we can make some sort of meme out of that surely yeah i've got one here from at katie glenn seven who says if anyone's looking for something to do if anyone's looking for something to do, I've just started listening to Blank Pod on Spotify. Give it a go. Well, thanks, Katie. It's nice to, uh, it's nice to uh, have people mm. tweeting about us in that way. Uh, and actually, I've got another one here. Oh, go on. Go on no, I've got one here from... Sorry, I'm going to read this one because this is Victoria English, and she's a long-time friend of the podcast. She's a big um, big listener, I know, because she sends me lots of nice messages about it. She's put, uh, This is about Mark Watson's podcast. Fabulous. Really resonated with me, the experiences of SAD. Sad. Um, how our lack of sunshine impacts our mental health. Again, a warm, wonderful, wise show which truly lifts your spirits. That's really lovely. So thank you, Victoria. Fantastic. People are very poetic and creative with their tweets at the moment. That's, uh, they are. that's wonderful. I'm very sorry to have interrupted you. No, nah, no, nah, it's fine. Uh, I was just going to read this on out from Helen at Helen Root, who's replying to you on Twitter and says, using all your blank podcasts to help me relax before bed can revisit ones already listened to. Uh, thank you. So that's nice that, that uh, Helen's going back to old ones and listening to them again. That's lovely. Yes, that is lovely. Thank you so much. And please keep your messages coming. You can tweet us at... At BlankPod. And you can also email us and possibly win the coveted blank mug if you actually attempt to email us at... The Blank Podcast 2018 at gmail.com said with incredible conviction <laughs> and it's correct you win the mug and you, you'll probably be the only person yay yeah i mean i feel like people's odds of winning are quite big at the moment because they'll be the only person that the emails so just do that and you get the mug okay i think we should probably crack on with this week's part i agree yeah it's chris addison on the blank podcast <laughs>
Well, Chris, welcome to the Blank Podcast. I know this is under sort of strange um, conditions. Well, this is the future, though. This, or at least this is our current situation, isn't it? I mean, everything will be podcast yes. from now on in. We didn't know, but the last 10 years have basically been leading up to this this moment. Everybody got broadcasting equipment and knows, and this is what's going to happen for the next whoever knows how long. Yeah, I think we were, we hopefully we've, we've been ahead of the curve, Jim and I. Um, no one said that, point. Charles. <laughs> no one has ever said that about us. <laughs> no, that's true. Um, what would you have been doing now, Chris, if you hadn't been sitting in a room talking to us? Well, I would have been sitting in the same room, uh, trying not to look at Twitter and, and, and doing some work or trying to do some work. That's really what I would have been looking around at my office. Uh, and thinking, I should tidy this place up. Um, uh, I would have been wandering over to the fridge, looking in the fridge, wondering why I'm looking in the fridge, wandering back from the fridge, and then repeating that cycle every every few minutes. The usual, you know. You've just described every day of my life. <laughs> yeah. This is the working from home. There's people keep saying, what's your advice about working from home? My advice is get rid of your fridge. I mean, that's the best reason for stockpiling tin goods, is you need to get rid of that fridge, man. Yeah. 100% agree. Could not and, agree more. Yeah, sorry, Jim. Are you, have you got a messy desk then? You're saying you tidied your desk. Oh, it's terrible. I, I, I sort of tidy my office. It's a, it's a big do, tidying my office. It shouldn't be. It's just I'm reluctant. I'm, it's like telling your 12-year-old to tidy their room. Uh, it takes longer than it absolutely should just because of the resentment uh, with which they approach it. And I'm the same with my office. Um, it takes me forever uh, in, to, to do it and uh, and I do it like once every nine months or something I, did, I only did it last month and it's already an absolute pit and I was looking at it thinking you know we are going to be locked down and you need to clear this space because um, that's going to keep that's one of the things that's going to keep you mentally healthy if you're if the plate the only place that you have refuge anymore is an absolute tip um, that's not going to help matters no, I'm very much the same. I'm the sort of person that needs to have a very tidy home and workspace uh, to yeah. feel good. Unfortunately, I married someone who uh, thinks the exact opposite. So we're in a constant <laughs> battle of right. uh, tidiness. But um, I think you're right. During this lockdown period, we need to make these spaces as comfortable as possible for our mental health because you literally can't go anywhere. Because you can't go anywhere. Exactly that. And I, I think it's also true about sitting in there and writing anyway. The it, I, well, I, it, it's uh, horses for courses, isn't it? But for me personally, my my own sort of messy nature plays against the thing that would make me feel more comfortable as you know as a writer. So I do wish, uh, I, yeah, I do wish that I, I spent more time. I, I mean, it's entirely within my gift. It's a stupid thing to say. I wish I spent more time clearing my my space. But you know, it's full and it's full of stuff. It's it, you get to a point, don't you, where you've collected so much stuff that there's nowhere to put it. Books and papers and files and old scripts and and you know, and I've got a keyboard in my um, in my office as well, and which takes up a it's in the way of the bookshelves and stuff. So everything just sort of feels, it feels like the kind of place where Marie Kondo would have a heart attack. <laughs> Are you, do you sort of person that keeps a lot of stuff and then you think I'm, I, I will get around to looking at that at some point. I need this. Yeah. And then you never look at it. Absolutely. I can't remember. There's that fantastic Japanese word for that pile of books by your bed that you will never read. My, my, uh, next to my bed is a, is a chest of drawers rather than just like a nightstand. It's a whole chest of drawers. The entire surface is covered with books, 
a foot and a half high. <laughs> and uh, and I know that I've got those to read and all the other books on all the shelves in the house. of books everywhere in our house. Uh, and, you know, if we're locked down for the next five years, I won't get through them. But there's absolutely nothing that will stop me from buying more books because <laughs> I'll look at them eventually. I won't look at them eventually. But also it makes you look really intelligent having loads of books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes you look intelligent. But And you just have to really work out how to deflect any questions about the books um, because you haven't read them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it gives it away very true yeah just, just general answers just general answers oh yeah no the ending yeah. was was great yeah terrific <laughs> the end, cover the the really Bible great cover great. Yeah. yeah 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 so chris we normally start off by sort of going back to um childhood what you're you were born in wales originally i was yeah i was born in cardiff yeah and yeah. and how long were you there for we were there for about we. I say we. Um, that's not a royal we. I mean the, the family. Yeah. Um, uh, we were there for about. I, I think we left when I was about four or coming up to four. Okay. Um, and then we moved to Manchester, and then almost immediately went to Hackney for six months, uh, and then moved back. And then, well, that was a, like a little sabbatical thing. And then, and then uh, I it, fundamentally I was brought up in Manchester, but I was sort of in. We we wandered a little when I was tiny. Okay. And what was what was childhood like? Uh, it was about 18 years, uh, roughly, <laughs> uh, from, <laughs> from start to finish, uh, roughly. Uh, <laughs> uh, I started quite small, ended quite tall. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my childhood was, yeah, it was, um, it was pretty cool, really. I couldn't complain about anything, nor could I mine it for, <laughs> for, for useful creative stuff. Uh, that's the downside of a of a of a lovely childhood, isn't it? But yeah, no, it was it was it was good. Uh, yeah, brought up in a, a family of five, and um, uh, my parents are really cool. They're lovely people. My uh, siblings are lovely people. It was pretty good, really. I can't I can't very well complain about it. Yeah, yeah, and well, and, and I have I felt over the last twenty five years of working in this business that you know a little bit more misery wouldn't have gone wouldn't say, have gone yeah. <laughs> Well, Chris, it's been great chatting. Thanks very much. And uh, we'll talk to you again. You're welcome. Soon. Good luck, everyone. Good luck. Look after each other, yeah? <laughs> um, so so Manchester is, is is your sort of spiritual home then? That's where you feel yeah, most, totally. uh, most at yeah. home. Yeah, oddly enough, just before we were talking, I was, um, I was on the phone with a friend of mine who's uh, just gone uh, back to his parents in, in Lincoln, uh, like, like Isaac Newton leaving London in the plague or whatever. He's, uh, he's, he's gone back to his parents. Everybody's doing it. Um, uh, I, I swear to you, the, the, the number of sitcoms that will be pitched off the basis of people in lockdown with their, with their parents because of coronavirus, it's, it's going to be out of out of hand um he's he's on his way back north and we were just talking about the point where i used to feel this when i was gigging that when i got up the m6 and i got north of birmingham i used to feel my shoulders sort of drop I, and my and my chest open and i kind of relaxed a bit and he was saying the same about um going north of nottingham on the m1 that there's that there's that feeling of as you sort of head towards your your spiritual home um there's a sort of there's a physical sensation to it almost and i still feel it um going back to manchester a friend of mine got married there at the beginning of the year and uh, uh my wife and i went and stayed in a hotel in the center of manchester and just hung out uh, for a few hours in the city centre, and it was honestly, it was like it was like balm for the soul. It was fantastic. 
That's a really interesting point, and I think it's it's really true about going back to your spiritual slash childhood home. But do you think you can ever get that feeling properly anywhere else then when you sort of settled elsewhere or not? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think you sort of you sort of you can get a version of it, an echo of it, and an approximation of it. Because actually, your home becomes something else, doesn't it? Your home becomes your your um, your family if you have a family in, in, yeah. in my case, you know, your, your partner, your family or, or whatever. I can remember thinking that about, um, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where I am. So long as I'm with those people, then fundamentally I am kind of, I'm sort of home and we've built a life uh, in a part of the world that I didn't grow up and my wife didn't grow up. And, but we aware that this is, this will be the, the, you know, the spiritual home of our children. And so there is something yeah. quite powerful about that. Even at, sometimes when I'm driving around, because I'm, I'm in a part of the world that I never imagined ending up in. Um, I sort of did it, it, and it happened by degrees and all of that kind of thing. I've been here long enough now that this is my stamping ground. And I sometimes drive around here going, well, I guess this is home then. Um, but there's nothing, there's a, there's a great um, set of books, uh, uh, about a 15th century, 15th century, 16th century Spanish detective uh, called Captain Alatriste. And in the first of those books, the author says, uh, a man's true home is his childhood. Uh, and I think of that often, I think, because actually it, Manchester is my spiritual home, but the Manchester of my childhood is not entirely there anymore, um, partly because the IRA blew it up. Uh, and uh, Manchester took the opportunity to sort of clear, <laughs> clear away some of the some of those places. Um, uh, but you know, there it just it sort of the skyline is different, and the I, I can, there's a pub that I used to go to, the best pub in the world. If you're ever in Manchester, the best pub in the world is the Marble Arch up on Rochdale Road. And in my youth, walking to that pub, you would walk through wasteland. It was like an outpost. There were a few little um, buildings here and there. It's near the it's near the sort of post depot. But other than that, there was derelict uh, wasteland. Uh, now, if you walk from the city centre up there, uh, you pass um, just I mean high rise after high rise, student accommodation. It's just it's bustling. It's a whole town of it in and of itself now. So it is kind of weird. I had this this experience a few years ago when uh, there's a pub called Sinclair's, which used to be in a, a place called the uh, the Shambles, um, uh, which no longer exists in Manchester. That was what it was a sort of it was it's this weird semi-timbered pub. That, it's beautiful uh, and it existed in this completely concrete environment. It was really weird. It was a it was sort of. Um, uh, it was sort of like a concrete courtyard built in the 60s. And the minute that the bomb went off, nowhere near the courtyard, or at least sufficiently far away for you to think that it wouldn't matter, uh, the concrete went, bye then! Uh, and they had to kind of knock the whole thing down. And they moved the pub. They moved it, um, physically moved the pub to sort of nearer the cathedral. And I remember, uh, you know, in the old days, in the shambles surrounded by the concrete, I used to go there and drink with my friends. Uh, I remember going back after it had moved and uh, and having a drink with them and sitting by the window, but with my back to the window. And I remember being you know, far enough into my cups uh, to be a, a little bit the worse for wear uh, and forgetting, you know, I, I'd, I'd been transported back to all of those years. And I turned yeah. around and saw the cathedral out of my window and went, fucking hell! <laughs> like the cathedral was sneaking up on me in some sort of Monty Python animation. <laughs> 
<laughs> so so you could like you, you it has changed but it's you know it's still my my heart lifts the minute i i get there i love that how much have i drunk jesus <laughs> yeah it was a genuine it really took me sort of two or three seconds to process what i was seeing uh, and realizing that i was in fact quite drunk you went to but you you went to university in birmingham is that right in Birmingham, yes. Yeah. Yes, I did. Yes. A great another great city. A mm. great city, Birmingham. Really, really underrated. It's a fantastic place. And and what was your what were your intentions at that point for your for your future? You, you, are you asking me about your daughter? Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, <laughs> what are your intentions? My intentions. So I had always well, I had uh, I was sort of obsessed with uh, drama and theatre at that mm. point. Um, uh, when I was a sixth form, I, that's sort of what I read. Uh, lots of plays, lots of stuff from the sort of seventies, and uh, and I uh, wanted to be a theatre director. That was my that was my thing. I didn't go and do drama or anything that would be useful to that because I sort of I didn't think of myself as a as an actor. But I wanted to. I really wanted to be a, a theatre director. Um, and so that was my intention. I, I directed quite a lot of plays at university and before, um, and that was my intention all the way along. And I was, I, I, I realised fairly soon. <laughs> well, I, I didn't ever sort of decide I'm not going to pursue that. I just sort of, I ended up doing other other things as a stopgap, and they kind of took over really. But that had been that was fully my intention. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? People, you sort of intend to do something sometimes and then life takes you in another way. And there often isn't one moment where you think, you know, sort of light bulb moment where you think, I'm not doing this. But um, can you remember the process that sort of took you away from from what you initially were planning to do? Yeah, absolutely. I remember I, I remember a sort of a foreshadowing of it. The day after I graduated, I was... Uh, I was on campus at, at Birmingham, sort of make, try, you know, reluctantly saying goodbye to the place. And uh, I bumped into one of my tutors, uh, Maureen Bell, brilliant, brilliant woman. Uh, and she, she said, so what are you going to do then, Chris? And I explained what my ambition was. And she sort of looked at me, and rather than saying, don't be fucking ridiculous, which wouldn't have been the wrong... Which she wouldn't have said, but she said a thing that I, she probably would have said to anybody after asking them what their dream was. She said, the funny thing about life is that quite often you're sort of walking towards a landmark that you can see there's a steeple in the distance and you're keeping an eye on the steeple and you don't notice that the path at your feet has been drifting away. And eventually you realize you're nowhere near the steeple and you don't quite know how it happened. And I didn't, I, I sort of nodded politely and I didn't realize what she meant until many years later when I suddenly thought, yeah, I've, I, I had kept my eye on that for quite a while. And, and actually I ended up um, doing stand up comedy instead. And the process with that really was that that year when you leave university, people don't explain this to students. And they really should that the year that after you leave university, unless you're somebody who's been um, sponsored through it by a, a business or the armed forces, or you know you're going to become a lawyer or something like that, that year is really hard because you're 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 coming out of the end of 17 years of full time education, and uh, that's been almost all of your existence. That you're you're not in, exactly institutionalized, but you have, there's a rhythm to what you do. 
and to your life and and there's a way that you're able to be with your friends to spend time with them and and a way that you're able to sort of structure your work um that is no longer available to you and that all of those brilliant extracurricular things that you were able to do are not there anymore you just you know they shut the door on you <laughs> you're so you're, you're you're wearing your 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 gown and your cap and they shut the door and that's it you're gone unless you choose to go back and and study further which actually has its own problems because your cohort has left and suddenly you find that you're kind of growing yeah. older in a in a in a different atmosphere it's one that's you you've attempted to preserve but found actually is impossible to preserve mm. nobody explains how hard how mentally hard that that year's adjustment um is going to be and i i mean i definitely found it because i i was a bit adrift really i didn't know how I was going to uh, manage to do this directing that I was so set on. And when you're at university, it's dead easy to do that because there's a lot of other feckless idiots with time on their hands. <laughs> and there's a lot of rooms that you can book for 30 quid and and they'll license you any play you want for no money because you're a student production and all that. So you can just do that stuff. But once you're out in the in the real world, the venues aren't available, the other people aren't available, without enormous effort on your part and um, and contact, really. So I sort of, I applied for a couple of things. I think I applied for like a, a, a postgraduate course in, um, in theatre directing, at, I think at Hull, I seem to remember. And then I also applied for like an, a traineeship at the Orange Tree Theatre in Richmond. And nothing came of those uh, of those things. And I sort of, I drifted into temp work in the way that people, or I was already doing temp work as you, as you do when you leave university just to you know, pay the bills. Um, and I, I hung around Birmingham for too long before realizing this wasn't, this wasn't the right thing to do. Um, and ab- about Easter the following year, I went home to Manchester for a, uh, just, you know, just to see my folks and to catch up. And, uh, we were out in a pub. We were out at Duke's 92 in Castlefield. And there was a, a leaflet for a venue called the Frog and Bucket, uh, yeah. of which I had never heard at that point. And it, uh, it explained that Monday nights was a show called Raw. And Raw was an open mic night. You could go and do whatever you wanted. Um, do five minutes of comedy. Just put your name down. Uh, and, I just, and I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try that. And I didn't tell my parents. I just I only told my brother, and said, "Will you come along for moral support?" And I I sort of I did that spot, and then I went back to temping in in Birmingham. And I think it sort of percolated through to me. This is a thing that you should be doing. And eventually, I, I went I I went back home to Manchester and started to do more comedy a couple of months later. And it, it, it was a very thriving scene in Manchester at that time. I mean, really thriving scene in Manchester at that time. Um, it was the sort of the heyday of, of Coogan and Carolina Hearn and John Thompson and all of that gang. And Dave Gorman and Lucy Porter were starting out at that time. Uh, Henry Normal was around and it was great. And there were a million, well, there weren't a million, but there were, there were enough places for you to play in the Northwest that you didn't really have to go to London and, and, and start your stand-up career there as so many people have had to do uh so i sort of and and in in having that scene i sort of found a social life as well i found a gang to hang out with and uh, it became it sort of quickly became my life and within within a year of that first gig i'd given up 
temping and um and and became a comic full time and the rest is a very weird career <laughs> uh, that's a very quick time to do that to go full time uh, yeah, but I think it's to do with the circumstances, the, the, the particular time in which it happened. Because it was, it was Manchester was sort of briefly the centre of comedy in the in the around about nineteen ninety six seven. Manchester was sort of somehow it was the, all of the interesting stuff was was coming out of there, and the scene was tiny. Really, there were only a handful of us, um, but it meant that there was a there was a a lot of work and you were able to the circuit was very healthy as well in those days you know pre i don't know how it is these days so much but but in the in the late 90s there were an awful lot of gigs all around you could be a, you could be a gigging comic pretty quickly if you had if you got a reputation and supported the right people and all of that you could do that relatively quickly i think it's harder now now that it, the back then in the 90s stand up wasn't a huge thing it wasn't um it wasn't there were, there were none of those kind of live at the apollo style gigs so you would have your 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 eddie izzards doing um a west end run here and there and you'd have your lee evans um uh doing a big wembley show but really mostly stand up was if anybody went on tour, they'd be in kind of mid-sized theatres and uh, at, at the top of it. And, the, and underneath it, there were a load of pubs and clubs um, doing live gigs. And I think a lot of that stuff seems to have been sort of sucked up by, uh, soaked up by the, the large ticket sales for all the kind of arena tours yeah. that, that, that happen now. Um, but then it was so, it was so sort of thriving that, and, there, and although there were people who wanted to be in it and it was, it didn't feel like now where it, it's it's much more of something that people aim aim to do you know so i mean we're thinking about that are you glad that you came about your career then rather than trying to sort of make it now yeah um, yeah absolutely i mean i i think if well i'm glad that i came about a career that was that involved basically doing 20 minutes in pubs then mm. i think it's much there are loads of things now that would have been incredible then. Um, the ability to film your own sketches and, and, and have them distributed and, or do a podcast. or There are so many mm. uh, avenues of expression. That's a shame because it then means there's a lot of, uh, on the one hand, it's a shame. There's yeah. a lot of noise to the signal, isn't there? But, yeah. um, but definitely, I mean, just in terms of that, that really old school way of starting, it was the perfect time and the perfect place to start. It was a, one of the several strokes of luck that I've been you know, fortunate to have. Can I just go back to the um, leaving university thing? Because what you said really struck a chord with me because I remember leaving university. And for me and actually quite a lot of my close friends, it was probably the hardest time of our lives. I don't think I've actually known my friends to be so down at that point because you feel so sort of lost and... It's like sort of jumping into a frozen lake. It's sort of, you, you, what you know is all warm, and then suddenly you're chucked out into the world, and it's all scary yeah, and cold. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I guess you kind of are, or should be, open to these moments of um, trying new things, which is what you did by going to Frog and Bucket. And that, in a way, it's a tough time, but actually, it's the perfect time to then be not really have too many expectations and just go and try stuff because you're just you're ready for those opportunities. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I, I did a, 
Um, I went back to Birmingham a, a few years ago, probably getting on for 10 years ago now. Good Lord. Oh, no, it can't be that long. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know about this. But a few years ago, that's all that, that's all that matters, um, to do a, a, a speech at graduation. Uh, and one of the things that I was trying to impress on, on them was, look, you don't have to know what you're doing right now. It's really easy to feel under pressure. And there are an awful lot of pressures that come from your parents, they're coming from your educational institution, which needs to show statistics, um, demonstrating that it gets its people into work and all of that kind of caper. Um, and also you're coming under uh, pressure from yourself because it's such a big, unknown, scary world out there that you just feel, I have to get myself sorted. I have to do this now. But I, I remember when I was turning 40, uh, which is a few years ago, that uh, you know, and, and all your content because you've been through the education system with your, your pals who are the same age. Everybody sort of, everybody's having the same contemplative moment at the same time. And I remember having these a, a series of sort of slightly sad um, conversations with friends who had pretty well established careers in the civil service or accountancy or, you know, something uh, more akin to a, 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 what people would call a real job um, than what I do. Uh, and they, and so many of those people were going, oh, I just wish I'd taken a risk. But the point that they got themselves the, to there was they got a mortgage, they got a family and they you know, and some of them were in those, were having those sorts of conversations where, what do I now do with the next ten years of my life? Because I'm, I'm at a, a point in my career where I can make the following decision: either I knuckle down and try and make partner or whatever that thing is, you know, do the big, get to the big, the be the big cheese by fifty and not see my children grow up, or I, I accept at the age of forty that I've sort of reached the level, and I enjoy the, you know, the the childhood of my children, then they go off. And what? And then what? And I, and and then it, you know, that's a, that's a highly reductive way of, of putting it. And of course, that's not everybody's experience for all sorts of reasons. Not everybody has a career. Some people have a job and all of that. But um, but not nonetheless, it is. Um, it, it was. I don't know. I, I just sort of. I was really aware of how much regret there was. And so when I was when I'd started out, I was twenty three when I began stand up, and uh, I remember making a deal with myself that, okay, it, I'll, I'll give myself five years to have a go at this, by which time I will be 28. And if it isn't working, I'll retrain as a teacher or a lawyer or something. I'll do something. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, but, but if I give it a proper go, then I can always know that I've given it a proper go. And uh, I can't regret anything at that, at that point. Um, and that, and I was lucky because uh, by the time I was 28, things were, Cool, and I was a you know I, I was making a good living and uh, and I could carry on, um, but I just feel that that making that sort of, sort of bargain with yourself is something that people should do. The, the 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 feeling that you have to know how the rest of your life pans out the minute that you at you know twenty one or twenty two walk out of the graduation hall that's balmy it's balmy i mean it happens earlier than that doesn't it my my son is now having to make his gcse choices and this is the beginning of him closing down his options for the for the you know as as his life goes on narrowing what it is that that he wants to do and i think that we we're so used to kind of narrowing those things to a point that we we're 
not geared necessarily to seeing that there are maybe other things to the side of us that we should be thinking of at least glancing at. Yeah, I mean, my, my son's gone through the same thing recently as well. He's in year eight, so he's been choosing his GCSEs, which just seems bizarre yeah. that you're choosing your life yeah. life goals at 12, um, you know, thinking that, you know, and, and it does feel like maybe as a society, we're trying to choose those things earlier and earlier and earlier and where we're not really, yeah. um, we're not really set up mentally to do that. Possibly. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I thinking back to to when I was 13 and making those choices, I guess um, I, I knew what I didn't want to do. There's that, isn't mm. there? I mean, mm. I, I suppose at GCSE, you, you've got there's so there's, it's such a broad palette at that stage still. I guess that you could, that you're not. It's not like you're having to go. I definitely know that I that why I absolutely want to be a corporate accountant uh, in the <laughs> in the soft fruit world. Right? You, you, that's you don't that's you don't have to be that specific about things, but but still there is something quite terrifying about the idea mm. of cutting bits off, cutting things off because you just you just you know you, it has to happen, but yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Mm. It's hard. Well, to... When you were having that talk with your friends and they were lamenting about sort of having chosen the sensible life, how did that make you feel? Because I think every day about getting a normal job, uh, even though I know that I'd absolutely hate it uh, and sort of struggling on with this creative existence. But what was your feelings when they were talking about that? Well, I mean, I, what I pointed out to them was that that what I never feel is secure. Uh, so there's, there's no, there's absolutely, it doesn't matter how successful your career is or you appear to be in, in, in or appears to be um, in this line of work. The truth is you, you just don't, you don't, you're a glorified freelancer effectively. And, and you just don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what's going to happen. There's nobody that you, no, nobody's going to, um, uh, pick up the tab for you if everything goes wrong there's it so there are there are some benefits to being in in a in a system i guess but um i i, I truthfully honestly i felt kind of relief i felt relief that i had done the thing that i chose to do and and i'm i'm approaching it from the point of view of somebody who's who's done okay and managed to make a, a, a career out of the last quarter century or, or, or off that and not everybody gets to do that not everybody makes that decision and it goes okay you know it could have been that I'd made that decision and at 28 things were going fine and and actually then I found myself a long way down the road still doing the clubs and the pubs and trying to bring up kids whilst you know scootling off to crew to do 20 minutes um uh, after the school drop-off or whatever then that and that I can imagine then it becomes like a job rather than a career, unless you just love the, the sensation of being on, on stage so much that that, you know, that that sort of treadmill uh, <clears throat> is not really treadmill like to you. Um, but I did feel, I, I, I did feel relief. I, was, I, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? The que- it would be interesting to ask these questions to people whose careers are not in the public eye because they haven't gone as well. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I wonder, because, because whenever you hear these answers, whenever you hear people like me who've been on the telly and, and all that give, give these answers, it's from a very specific um, perspective. I was talking to somebody, a um, brilliant costume designer that I know, and I was asking after her, her uh, kids, 
and she was saying, oh, God, she was talking about her son. She was going, oh, he's just determined to be an actor. He's absolutely determined to do it. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, the problem with that is that he's only ever seen successful actors because he's a, he's a, he's a family of crew. Whenever he's come on, on set, the only actors he sees are the ones who are working. What he doesn't see is the thousands of people who are waiting, just waiting for, for a thing to happen. I always feel that if you're going to become... Um, uh, if your child wants to become an actor, you have to take them to the local library, if you're still lucky enough to have one, go to the reference section, find Spotlight, and put the put the put those massive books, like Spotlight, for people who don't know. Spotlight is the directory of actors, and it is huge. It's huge. It's, yeah. it's like 19 telephone directories thick. And there are obviously there are people who don't know what telephone directories are, but, but um, you can Google that. The, the, it's enormous Spotlight in its physical form, and it's terrifying when you go, that's your competition. That's who, that's who you're up against. Um, this sounds very depressing and very sort of un, un, uh, <laughs> uninspirational, but... I do, I do, I, nonetheless, I sort of feel like it's a very long answer again to, to a very short question, but I, I, felt, I felt a relief that I'd done the thing that I uh, had, had done, that I'd made that gamble, but it could so easily not have been relief. It could have been, what are you complaining about? <laughs> I'm doing chuckle buckets in Nantwich tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Were there ever moments where you did think, oh, this is it, I've had enough. I want to do a normal thing. I've had enough. No, I don't think... I mean, I... Like, my agent said to me recently, you you have the bizarrest career of anybody I've ever met, let alone manage. Um, because <laughs> because it, it is an odd, it's an odd career where I sort of started in stand-up and then did acting and then went into directing. And, you know, and I've also written for pretty much everything, written books and had columns in newspapers, written sitcom, all of that kind of... So, so I've never got bored. And, and the, the, mm. the interesting thing for me has been because I sort of did stand up as a creative, uh, uh, like a, as a valve release, really. I, I was so kind of pent up with creative frustration once I'd left university and I wasn't able to do those things. I did stand up essentially as a, just as a thing to do. So that, uh, and the result of that is I've never had the big goal. I never went, right, I'm going to play the Palladium or I'm going to fill the Albert Hall like Billy Connolly or anything like that. I, I've just sort of taken it as it comes. And, and, and that, that's meant that when other opportunities have come up, I've, um, I've been more open to taking them maybe than I mm. might have been if I'd been sort of laser focused on, on, on one big idea. And the result of that is I've not really had the opportunity to be bored, which is a very lucky thing to be, to be able mm. to say in your job. Um, I've been really fortunate in, in being able to go, oh, yeah, yeah. When people have gone, why don't you come over here and have a go at this? I go, okay, yeah, all right, yeah, I'll try that. Um, and, um, and so I've never, I've never felt like, ah, fuck this. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important to be open to I mean, actually, it's, it's, those stuff, though. Yeah. Well, this is what we were talking about, though, isn't it, Jim? That's, the whole idea is that, is that you've, got to be, you've got to be open to... to other things than the one thing that you were the one thing that you were concentrating on there've definitely been times i i mean there were there were times there, there have been times when i've when i've sort of felt stale at mm. some part of it um but which is also why it's good to do other things because if you're doing other things then you you're always kind of excited to go back to the the one that you you deviated from in the first place you know 
Um, I totally agree with that. Uh, and I'm always trying to do other things. But if I can bring it back to the here and now, and I'm so sorry to mention the word coronavirus. And this has been such a lovely it, you know, high energy chat. I'm sorry to bring it back down. But <laughs> we're talking about freelancing um, and yeah. the uncertainty that oh. comes with that. Obviously, now with the coronavirus and particularly stand up comedy or uh, particularly any of the creative yeah. industries, obviously, everyone's kind of livelihoods has really been... Um, just you know thrown into un a massive uncertainty i mean what how do you think this is going to affect the sort of creative industries long term because this could be a while that people are you know out of work yeah i mean it, it's very difficult to say i think there's a there's a report this morning pointing out that you know obviously every industry everywhere is affected by this but but relating it only to my own specific um work the film and tv industry 170,000 people have lost their jobs over this coronavirus because because yeah isn't that so far and and mm. that's because production after production after production has been stood down and crews are you know crews are huge and it's a very um that's a it's it, it's a funny thing about about uh, film and tv that because we sort of because in terms of publicity they're pitched in a certain way at us and because gossip mags revolve around soap starlets and and, and hollywood a-listers and all of that kind of cake but we do think of it as being quite a glamorous profession but it's but but that's above the line as they say in budgets below the line it is a fiercely working class profession and an awful lot of um, you know, yeah. pe people who are just who are workers who are paid hourly or daily rather, um, who are going to get utterly screwed over and have and and again, it's 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 uh, gig for gig, it's freelance work. They 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 don't have any any protection. What's going to happen? I I mean, I don't know. I think it's part of a much larger question, isn't it? And that larger question is what's going to happen to all of us? Um, how are they going to how are they going to deal with this? My my silver lining hope. In it is I'm a I'm a great believer in the idea of universal basic income. I think it's a really canny, clever um, idea. It's quite a radical notion uh, mm. from from the sort of from the baseline of where we were three months ago. But mm. actually, you know, in in times of great crisis, that's where radical ideas come from. That's how we got an NHS, isn't it? That's, it took a world war to get us the welfare yeah. state, mm. and maybe something like this will uh, will maybe the universal basic. I mean, the universal basic income, income is sort of the solution to this. To this it to an extent and it would be i mean i'm hoping that that's what's gonna what's gonna save us all ultimately and then i'm hoping that once this has passed it it's an idea that's better understood and perhaps something that we can actually get going yeah uh, sorry yeah. sorry jimmy well i totally agree and you're absolutely right that that out of sort of crises often comes big big ideas bigger thinking and and better solutions and i think that's probably the way of creativity yeah. you were saying at the start of this conversation you know lots of people are sort of turning to the internet and do more podcasts and making videos and yeah. stuff and i wonder if this might even be a sort of weirdly i'm not sure if it's the right phrase or not but like almost like a golden age of creativity because everyone's stuck indoors and we might actually see a real explosion of incredible ideas forced on people by being isolated it's completely possible. I mean, you know, the, the, there'll be nothing left to do but go to your desk eventually and mm. and write something because, yeah. uh, you know, enough of the prevaricating. And I, I, there are very few writers. I don't, I'm very suspicious of writers who go, yes, yes, I'm, a, I'm at my desk at nine every day and I regularly write two and a half thousand words. <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, not, yeah. that's not most of us. <laughs> Fuck you. No, yeah. uh, uh, and, and uh, you know, we, we are slowly... 
or, or possibly quickly going to run out of options um, and others, other distractions. And we will, uh, the best, the thing that we will, the best thing that we can do for ourselves will be to actually sit down and do some proper writing. So yeah, uh, maybe, I mean, again, in times of war and crisis, that is when, um, you know, it, that, that tends to spark big ideas and big creative movements. So here's hoping. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, art is a comfort to create and also to, um, partake in, you know, yeah. because it's just a, you know, because we all know it's a distraction from from everything. So yeah, I think it is. I think you're right, Jim. I think you are as well, Chris. That um, we are going to see a lot of stuff being created, and hopefully, you know, it's going to take our minds off things for a while. Yeah, and and it doesn't. By the way, it doesn't have to be great art that will be hanging in the Tate in no. 50 years time for our children and grandchildren it, it, it's just like you said it's therapy as much as anything else mm. it's just it's at this point it is um, th- there's something really wonderful about being able to sit and paint or draw or, or write a tune or just any or bake or create anything and it doesn't really matter how good or bad it is just the process of it itself is entirely rewarding mm. i'm really glad you both said that actually because i wanted to sort of come onto this idea of, sort of coronavirus anxiety again a phrase i've not said before today but i feel like i'm <laughs> saying it quite a lot in the future yeah. and i think a yeah. lot of people will be having it no matter what industry you're in yeah. and people will be worried about you know what money and and job security and what to do and stuff but i guess if you have the option and i understand a lot of people will not be able to because they'll be too worried about money and stuff but if you have the option to do something creative or you know try and take your mind off this uh, impending doom then maybe actually being creative could be a way of sort of reducing that that anxiety even so slightly and even slightly might just be enough sometimes each day yeah i i i there's so many ideas around at the moment that are here's what we're gonna do with the quarantine (laughs) and uh and We've got to just pace ourselves in all sorts of ways. Partly because you should never open the sweets at the beginning of the journey, and and uh, <laughs> excellent. Yeah, you know what I mean, though, right? So, mm. so but you can't because that's then your treats ruined. So so yeah, you have to you have to you absolutely have to pace pace yourself on it. And also, nobody has to like. I'm going to learn. I'm going to learn the bassoon to grade eight standard. No, dummy. But don't beat yourself up about this. Like you don't have to set yourself massive goals and then and then achieve them. Everybody's going to approach this in different ways, and every way is legitimate. You've got to do what's good for your mental health and your well-being and that of those around you. Um, and yeah, you, I mean, God, God help us if on top of the national confinement, we uh, we give ourselves uh, yeah terrible un- unreachable goals that we then beat ourselves up with <laughs> come out i mean you know we've got enough to deal with with without that but yeah just whatever whatever you know whatever takes you in the in in the mood i think in in, in any moment uh, or or you know I, mean, I was talking to my wife about this earlier because obviously it's the last day of school Jimmy will be going through this. It's the last day of school with the with the kids, and so we have to figure out over the weekend, right? How are we going to structure our days? What are we What are we going to do with that? And and it's going to be. And we were talking about it, we can't just be sort of standing over them, going work, do the work, do all that work you're supposed to be doing at school. There's got to be other stuff in there as well, hasn't there? There's got to be a kind of acknowledgement of the weirdness of the situation and an attempt to kind of alleviate 
alleviate it in some way and, and, and our worries. And if creativity is the thing that does that for you in the moment, then great. But make it about in the moment. Don't go, by the time I finish this, I will have done my nine novel cycle. Because you're <laughs> setting yourself up for something dreadful. I totally agree. I think I think I think being kind to yourself is key anyway really outside of mm. national crises um but i certainly think when anxiety is heightened and when uh, things are uncertain being being kind to yourself not giving yourself ridiculous targets to me and as you say living in the moment and mm. taking each day as it comes i think is a really good way to sort of to to lower your your mental health worries in any day really but certainly at the moment um, yeah, because we don't we don't know what's going to happen, do we? We, you know, we don't know what's going to happen weeks or months down the line, to be honest. So it's very difficult to set goals for yourself when you don't know what the world's going to look like in a couple of months. Exactly, and you can, you know, and if you're anything like me, you catastrophize anyway. And so it's really important to not to not do that. The only thing that you can think of is the thing that's in front of you right at that moment, which is yeah. sometimes feel. I mean, th- that feels uh, terrifying. That th- from a as we know, is again the, the the freelancer fear is what's what's coming up in the diary, and and that is that that desire to know the future, just to feel the, some sort of security and 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 understand that. Well, if I, if I'm focusing on that thing that's happening over there, then I you know I sort of know what's um uh, I, I can I can deal with the, everything that's happening in the in the in the interim. But actually, yeah, we just have to. We just have to deal with the thing, the thing that's in front of us at that particular moment. Well, yeah, I have to say this has actually made made me feel a lot better. So thank you, Chris. This has been. I feel like I've had a bit of therapy with you this morning, but it's, it's actually made me feel a bit calmer about everything. That's good, and this is how I'm earning my money during the uh, during the national confinement is uh, <laughs> therapy. So I'll, I'll send you the I'll send you the invoice. Yeah, and I won't pay it. But yeah. That's great. Okay, that's it. That's it. I mean, that's the new economy. <laughs> You we'll can pay panic in, by we, therapy. That's what you need to do. Well, no, I am. I'm just going to say we're, we're sort of going to be paying in different. <laughs> yeah. We're going to be paying in different in different things, aren't we? We're not going to be paying with cash anymore. It's going to be toilet. You think we're going to return to a barter system? Yes, absolutely. I think that's really interesting. I think that would be amazing. Yeah, I can. I can. See, toilet roll becoming a currency is quite is quite something. Buy an I, apple for five sheets. I saw a, a, a I saw a thing on uh, I don't know if it was a spoof yeah I don't know if it was a spoof or not but I saw some people playing poker and instead of chips they had toilet rolls oh really yes yeah. that is a spoof that's excellent that's very good <laughs> I mean it's about, somebody pointed out I mean I understand why people are, are doing it but the, the 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 panic brain comes from a place of what if we're inside for for fourteen yeah. days what do we do or if we get ill it's that isn't it but as um. As Matt Ford was pointing out this morning on Twitter, that you know, this is a supermarket system that is designed to service the needs of 60 million people, and it does it perfectly well all the time. Yeah. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, um, we just sort of need to we need to calm calm ourselves. We certainly do. Agreed. Um, before we go, I wanted to just quickly ask you about because um, obviously you've moved into directing a lot more. Yeah. Um, how one? How did that come around, and and how's the experience been? Are you going to do more? Yes, I very much hope I will. Um, uh, who knows? Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, maybe I'll be end up directing a little film with the kids or something. Just yeah, to yeah. Make the time go. But, um, but uh, yeah. So how it happened is that um, when uh, when we made the final series of the thick of it, 
back in 2012. That was between uh, the first series of Veep and the second series of Veep. So for those who don't know, Veep, I'm going to assume you know what the thick of it is, but Veep, it was the, sort of a, its American cousin. So Veep was a sitcom made for HBO by the same team who made uh, the thick of it, so same writers, uh, and it was Armando Iannucci at the head of it all and so forth. Anyway, they made series or season, as they say in the States, they made season one of Veep, and then they came back here and did the final series of the thick of it, and then went immediately back to America to do season two of Veep, which was insanity i mean i can't begin to imagine what thought process uh, led to the idea that this will be fine um of course it won't be fine uh it will be madness and so it was <laughs> and uh uh and armando up to that point um with the thick of it had directed every episode not with the not with veep he directed a few of them and other people tristram shapiro and chris morris and so on and becky martin had um, had directed bits of um of, of feet, but he had done uh, every episode of the thick of it, and this time he realised he couldn't possibly do that because we had to get scripts up and running for Veep Two and mm. and so on. So he decided that uh, he needed uh, other people to come and direct most of the episodes of um, of final series of the thick of it, and that show was shot in a very unusual way in terms or in sort of filming terms. The way that film films and TV are normally made is very uh, it's quite f- uh, formal generally you know you have marks where you have to stand uh, and you have to hold your head in a certain position because the lights are in a particular way and uh, all of this stuff and with the thick of it we never filmed anything like that there's a lot a lot of looseness around the scripts um there was a lot of looseness around the filming you did you could just as an actor you could go where you wanted um the cameras sort of had to follow you it was a very unusual way of filming and so he felt that the best way of doing it was to get people from sort of within the family to mm. to direct. So that meant that it meant a, a, a bunch of first time directors. Basically, I I did it. Um, uh, Arms uh, former assistant Natalie Bailey, who's brilliant and has had a made a, a brilliant career. She, I think she's just doing her first film actually at the moment. Um, Nat did it. Uh, Billy Snedden, who was sort of the original thick of it editor, and then Tony Roach, who was one of the chief writers. Um, uh, and and then me and he asked me because he knew that I had wanted to be a director um, and I think possibly he misremembered that I it was a theatre director but he went you are a director why don't you come and do this um, which is one of two times in my career that Armando said to me you, why don't you come here and try this thing and that has entirely changed my life the other mm. one being acting in the in, in the first place which I hadn't done before think of it Anyway, so I so I I did um, episode five of the final series of the, of the Thick of It, which is the one where the leak happens. It's the one just before the inquiry, and um, it was amazing and terrifying. And we used to shoot very quickly. We used to shoot those an episode in four days, which is super wow. quick for TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and and, and our, our scripts are long as well. You know, our scripts used to be 50, 60 pages long. So the, the first cut of an episode of the thick of it would be like an hour. So you'd be shooting an hour's worth of footage in, in four days. It was wow. kind of mad. And um, but, uh, but I remember on the fourth day, I was just having my breakfast uh, uh, at, at base. And the script, no, it wasn't the script supervisor. I think it was the production coordinator came up to me and said, um, uh, yeah, just to let you know, um, Armando's, um, Armando's ill today, so he won't be here. Because up until that point, he'd been, he'd been by the monitors at every, mm. every point with all of us, uh, which was great because, you know, you, you always had his kind of eye and you had his approval. Yeah. 
everything that you needed. And then he suddenly wasn't there. And I remember thinking, holy fuck, what am I going to do? And, the, and the, 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 to make it even harder uh, was the fact that at the time I was, um, I was also acting in a film, a Michael Winterbottom movie called The Look of Love with, with Coogan. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and because of that, I, we'd had to shift which one I was going to direct. I was originally going to direct the first episode, which was all of the government and had none of the opposition in. So Ollie, my character, wasn't in it. But we had to shift it to five, which my character was in. So on that day without Armando, I was direct, I remember directing a two-hander between me and Peter Capaldi. And I was thinking, I mean, the balls to just try and direct Capaldi in the first place, the balls to tell Capaldi what he should be doing. It's just, I mean, that's insanity anyway. Um uh, I, and I, I couldn't see the monitor. I had to just sort of direct myself. I, was, I remember there's a point where we got to the end of the dialogue, and I suddenly went, "Oh God, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, cut!" Because <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> it was really hard. Um, and then uh, Arm came in the next day and said, "How was it?" And I went, "Yeah, it was, yeah, it was fine." Um, and he said, piss. "Yeah, I knew you'd be okay." Yeah, yeah. He said, and I, "He said I, I just woke up feeling awful, and I thought, no, I knew you'd be okay.'" Uh, which was an amazing vote of confidence. And then he said, do you want to fancy coming and directing V? And I went, um, sure. <laughs> uh, and, he said, and he said, listen, it's, it's difficult because you have to join the Directors Guild of America and that costs like $10,000 just to join. Wow. Uh, I know, I know. Um, and I went, uh, mm? okay. He said, so I'll give you like three episodes to direct so that you can you know, co- cover the costs of that. Um, and I went, yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, and then I, I sort of, um, and I, so that was the beginning of my involvement with directing and, and sort of Veep, which I directed for the next four years. And um, yeah. yeah, it's been, it's odd because it's, it, since that point, I have, you know, I have done other bits in front of camera. I have uh, acted in uh, like Doctor Who and there's an Amazon series Patriot and so on. And I've, I've done tours in that time as a stand up, but slowly, it's all been moving towards kind of um, directing and producing and, and, and writing stuff. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, I, I'm, I, I, until the Corona uh, virus, uh, I was um, going to be shooting a film later this year uh, and so on. Everything's on hold now, of course, but mm. when it gets back to normal, yeah, the plan is definitely to, to keep doing more of that. It's just, I love it. I love it, man. Yeah, that's a, that's a really sort of nice way. We've almost come full circle on, on the podcast mm. there because that, again, is another example of being open to other opportunities. Totally. You know, no matter how terrifying they might be. And obviously getting the uh, support of someone like Armando Inucci, I mean, that's unbelievable. Um, yeah. But again, as terrifying as it might have been, you still did it. You went for it and it worked out and it's created more opportunities for you. So again, yeah. it's, just, it's just being open to those opportunities. Absolutely. And the other, the, there's also another lesson in it, I think, for people who are in a position to give those opportunities, which is one of, one of Armando's amazing strengths, and it's not really yeah. talked about much. I wrote, I wrote a piece about this on the occasion of the sort of the end of the thick of it, is how, if you look at the, the writers on the thick of it, those people hadn't written sitcoms. Uh, he, he found people that he thought were interesting and who he thought might be a good fit and, and he might get something unusual out of. Um, and he's, and, and, mm. uh, and, well, I say those people have written sitcoms, of course, Jesse Armstrong had, of course, written one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, a peep show. Um, uh, but, you know, but mo- most of the people who, especially who sort of came on board latterly, they hadn't particularly. And 
uh, and I hadn't directed, and neither had those people in that final series who who were the other kind of um, uh, arm substitutes. Um, and I think a, a, a thing that I try and keep in mind with with Armando is um, I, I've tried try to have learned from him is that uh, that that trying to spot people who are doing another thing and thinking, I think you might be quite good at this thing mm. over here. Come and have a go. But if you're, if you're, if you're looking as somebody who's an, who's an employer or, or the, you know, the keeper of any kind of vision um, in, uh, in whatever environment, then it's, that's a really good thing to be open to. Yeah. Pass it on, pass those opportunities on that you had so that someone else might have them as well. Absolutely, but not just that. It's to your benefit because it means that you're going to you're going to get people who are um, interesting and have fresh eyes and different ideas yeah. and haven't come through a particular system. And you know, one of the things that Armando, one of the things that makes his show so good and his work so good is that whenever he's met with the the, the phrase, but that's not the way that we do it, he goes, "Well, why?" And then if somebody says, "We've always done it that way," he'll say, "Well, so." It doesn't mean that we can't create a new way of, of, of doing things. And if you've got fresh eyes and, um, uh, you know, the, those first of all, those people are more likely to fit into your let's build a new way thing because they, they're not clinging on to an old way. Um, but secondly, they might, you know, they might, they, they're not, um, it's a, well, it's a related to the first point, but they're, they're, they're not um, sort of jaded or, or they, they haven't learned to ignore some things without almost without knowing that they're ignoring them. Um, uh, uh, do you know what I mean? So that they're mm, yeah. like, I think it's really easy to, to go, this is the path that we tread uh, when actually you should just be thinking, how do I get over there? Well, I mean, the path now, who knows what it's going to look like. You know, if we all survive the coronavirus, then there might be a new path for all of us. So that yeah. feels like very timely advice. Well, I mean, the best thing, the thing is, uh, it's been charming for you to just to say that these are good pieces of advice. But I would would give you the caveat that I am a blithering idiot. So uh, so just bear that in mind when um, when <laughs> assessing anything that I might. So have am said. I. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Uh, well, I am too, so that's absolutely yeah. fine. But um, good, Chris, good. this has been an absolute pleasure talking yeah. to you. Thank you so much for your time. No Thank worries, you, thanks, fellas. Thanks for thanks for having me on your lovely podcast. Yeah, well, it's really really kind of you to give us some of your time. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, listen, good luck out there. Look after each other yes. and all of that. Uh, and, well, likewise, yeah. Uh, and, and we'll speak in the smoking ruins sometime. Yeah. there you go that was uh chris addison on the blank podcast uh thank you so much to chris for giving up his time and talking about a, a range of a range of things really we covered a lot of ground there didn't we yeah um and i should say we we were supposed to meet up with chris to on this day this very day and um chris was gonna have to cancel because he had some location scouting to do up in scotland i'm sure you won't mind me saying that and uh but obviously he got cancelled uh, because of what's going on with the coronavirus and um, obviously the schedules have all been put back so he messaged me and said look let's do it let's do it via via remote control and so we've 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 hooked up 
some software and we are doing it remotely and so it's a big thanks to chris for still wanting to to come on and speak to us so um absolutely really and it. um so many things to take away uh i loved the the analogy of the never open the suite at the start of the journey um i've written that in my notepad oh, that was great i think that's absolutely brilliant and it really resonated with me um yeah and i just liked all the idea of you know using this uncertainty to try new things and you know open up our minds a little bit and and mm. try and sort of take you know, t- take the sort of silver lining from all this and again as we said at the start of the pod as humans who are good at adapting and sort of making the best of difficult situations yeah absolutely and it was really great to hear all the stuff about um those those difficult years out of university as well which i think a lot of people feel i know you you touched on that for yourself as well that sort of feeling of being a bit lost after all these years of um, education and then you're sort of thrust into the world of work and it's, it's such a bizarre thing really that we we put ourselves in those particularly at an age where we're sort of feeling a bit kind of we're still still trying to work ourselves out a little bit so that was good to hear from Chris about all that kind of period yeah, of his life it was it was interesting and, and 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 very very helpful as well especially at this current time so thank you so much to Chris for uh joining us on the podcast and making it work you know we are soldiering on in these uncertain times and uh making everything work and we really appreciate that so i think that's it really giles this week it just sort of leaves me to say look after yourself and uh, same to our listeners be safe be careful wash your hands all that kind of stuff um try a new skill you know see what happens in your in these in this downtime but the main thing is look after you look after yourselves and each other and um stay safe thank you jerry springer <laughs> Hey Mel, Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty. Hey, Mikey, if you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey, popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart, Brian. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.